The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Recording? Yep. Okay. Okay. While he's working the recording out, I'll also say I made my best guess on the number of people who would be here, and I got it pretty close, I think. Um, so if we run out of handouts, um, um, Yes, we can, I'll, I'll go or someone will go and we'll get some more copies for later and perhaps if you could share one if you're sitting near someone. Uh, but I think we're okay for right now unless any new people come. Okay, great. Okay, great. So please take it and then uh, if anyone else comes in, we'll make sure they get taken care of. So um, here's how I'd like to begin. Um, we're, the topic today, we'll explain what these terms mean, but it's about this concentration, samadhi and jhana, and the way that it's taught and understood. It's, it turns out to be a pretty big world. It's not just one way. But let's just begin right on the first page of your notes there. Um, here's the first quote attributed to the Buddha. This was when he was talking about, he had been doing all these intensive ascetic practices for about six years. And he had had a lot of certain attainments and accomplishments, but he realized it didn't, he didn't get to this enlightenment, this liberation that he was seeking. And then he had this realization, this is, quote, talking about looking back on what turned his path in a different direction. He said, I considered, could jhana be the path to enlightenment? Then came the realization, that is the path to enlightenment. That's a pretty strong statement about jhana. Now, I want you to hold that in context because in a bit I'm going to uh, suggest that the Buddha did make a, a really big deal about jhana, for sure. But, the way to hold, but also, we shouldn't think it's a big deal at all either, and it's not necessary. We want to think of it as skillful means. But here the Buddha's not saying that. He's saying that is the path to enlightenment. So I don't want anyone to... Uh, uh, you know, get, st get your mind to uh, agitate it over that. We're going to really explore, well, is that really true? What do the, the teachings say about it? And then the next, next quote here, too. And this is a pretty powerful quote, too. There are five detrimental things that lead to the decay and disappearance of the true Dhamma. And then he says, what are the five? And he lists out the five. You can see them. They dwell without reverence and deference towards the teacher and towards the Dharma, towards the Sangha, towards the training. And the fifth, they dwell without reverence and deference towards samadhi. That's this word concentration. concentration. That's one of the things that leads to the decay and disappearance of the true Dharma. Again, pretty strong statement. Okay. It's just to set a little context here. So let's just look at these goals for the class here. Um, well, we want to understand, I'll just read them here, understand the range of teachings on this word samadhi. We still haven't really defined it yet. I said concentration. Now we're talking about in the Pali tradition. That's our tradition here. So I'm not talking about some of the Mahayana traditions and Zen and Tibetan Buddhism and all of that. We're, we're, not, we're not going there. That, that, that would even, we, we've got enough on our hands to do in one day as it is. 
So we want to understand, and I say the range of teachings, it turns out it's not just one way. And that can lead to some confusion. And matter of fact, if you are involved in the Dharma community, in the Dharma scene for any length of time, it doesn't take long to hear people coming from a lot of, around meditation practice, coming from a lot of different places and sometimes contradicting each other about how does concentration fit with insight meditation, how much or little they emphasize concentration. This term, which we'll get into, jhana, is it important or not? What is it? It's a, it's a big world out there. And my, one of the important goals is by the time the day's over, I hope you'll feel very clear about kind of what that terrain, the territory looks like and, and help. And the, import, the point is so it can help inform your practice. Because the good news, as far as I can tell, people seem to be achieving tremendous depths of liberation awakening, I don't know this word, enlightenment, practicing in all these different styles. So I think that's good news because to me what it means is it's not like there's this one correct right way that's out there if only we could find it. It's that there's a whole range of what I call skillful means and it's finding what works, what we're drawn to and what really supports each of us to liberate our hearts and minds. So it's not just one way. Okay? And then, under, number two, understand the relationship between samadhi and insight meditation. And again, it's a big world out there. It's not just one way it's taught. So we can kind of understand it. And not only stand, understand what the texts say, not only understand what different teachers are saying, but why. How can this person be saying this? And then someone else is saying really different. So, you know, how, you know, so I hope we'll do that. Understand the nature of jhana, what that is. And then, uh, this will be a big part, number four, understand some of the main disagreements and controversies out there. Really look at them and kind of tease them apart a, a little bit, okay? And then the fifth, of course, is to um, inform and support our practice. So that's, that's what I have in mind. Any comment about that question? Okay. Okay, good. All right. So we'll continue on, and what we're going to do is, actually, we're going to jump around through the day. We're not going to go straight through the order in your notes. I've put them in a certain order, so if you want to go read through them, they make sense, but we're actually going to approach it um, uh, a little out of order. Um, the other thing is, there will be a few part, points during the day where there'll be what I consider to be the main points. So you don't have to get too worried about a lot of the details. And I'll point that out. I'll say, this is one of those main points. At least in my opinion, yeah? And there'll be a few of those. It'll be key. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Um, So, um, I want to give a little historical background first, and this will only take maybe five minutes. After the Buddha, but it's, it'll really, it's important just to, to hold the context here. After the Buddha died, this is according to tradition, within, um, actually let me back up from that, within a few hundred years after the Buddha died, 
tradition tells us that Buddhism had, it, it, had, it, it had grown in, there were a number of different schools. The traditional number is 18 different schools of Buddhism. And those are considered the early schools. And they weren't sometimes, uh, you know, some of them we don't know much about and some we have a fair amount of it we know about. And um, it would be sort of like if, you know, remember they didn't have the ease of transportation and instantaneous worldwide communication and the internet and all that. So if, if as Buddhism spread, even if it was maybe a hundred miles, a couple of hundred miles away from other groups, the communication wouldn't necessarily, you know, they would kind of evolve and grow in different ways. And they were all trying to practice and understand the Buddhist teachings according to their, their best sincere understanding. But naturally things could grow. Some people might have a slightly different understanding and, and, or quite a bit. So it grew into these different schools. Um, those were all considered the early schools of Buddhism. What you hear about is the Mahayana, which is what you might know. Is a, Mahayana is a big world, but what we mostly know in this country, the various schools of Zen, the Tibetan schools of Buddhism, Chan, there's Pure Land, others. Those developed later, much later. So these early 18 school, schools, all of them died out except for one, which is still here as a living tradition today, and that's the Theravada. And it's, I think I may have put the word, I don't know if I have the history in your notes, but the Ter, it's spelled T-H-E-R-A-V-A-D-A, -A -A, but it's pronounced Terra. Terra means elders, it's the school of the elders. And that's the style of Buddhism that's practiced today in uh, Burma, Thailand, Sri Lanka, maybe Laos, Cambodia, and those countries. And that's the style that's come here in this country in the form of what we call insight meditation, the term with a V, Vipassana in Pali. Of course, we've, now everything's, all the schools are in different types of Buddhism are informing each other, so it's changing in this country. But that's, that's the style, and that's what we're practicing in. Well, according to the Theravada tradition, within a couple of months after the Buddha died, they held a, a council. It was called the First Great Council. And there were enlightened men and women, but the men were the ones who came for this council. And uh, all, they were the monks. And they came to recite and recount and agree upon what the Buddhist teachings were because no one was writing it down. And in this first council... Um, Ananda, Ananda had been the Buddha's, was the Buddha's younger cousin, and he had been the Buddha's uh, personal uh, attendant during the last 25 years of the Buddha's life. So he was around during all the talks and the teachings, and so he recounted all these stories, like this is what happened, we were here, and, and, um, and they came to some agreement among themselves about, yeah, that's what really happened, and here's was the teachings. And over time, those that recounting evolved into what today is preserved in the language as Pali, and which is closely related to Sanskrit, and it is um, what are called the suttas. You may have heard the term sutra, which is a Sanskrit. That's sutta in Pali. It's actually related to the English word suture, like in a, when you're doing surgery, a th uh, stitches, a suture. It means a thread, thread. Maybe it's the thread of the teachings, I, I don't know. But it's called the suttas. And those are the discourses and the teachings that we have today that, can, that have preserved the teachings throughout 
you know, 20, roughly 2,500 years, right? And so we're going to be doing two things. We're going to be looking a lot, going back at the original texts here to say, well, what do they really say about concentration and jhana and insight? Um, there were some other parts of what's called the Pali Canon that, just, just for completeness, I'll tell you, that were preserved in the, uh, during that, that were uh, discussed in that, during that uh, uh, council. Upali had, was reno- renowned for his mastery of the uh, monastic code of conduct, and so he recounted the rules of behavior. That became what is now uh, the second basket of the Pali Canon known as the Vinaya, or sometimes called Vinaya, uh, uh, which is the monastic code. We're not getting into that today. And you may have heard of a third basket called the Abhidhamma in Pali or Abhidharma. That evolved in later centuries. And people, I'm just mentioning for those who know it, um, it went in a very different, this, what I'm saying here is controversial. Some people say to understand the sutra, suttas, you have to know the Abhidhamma. People like Ajahn Tanisro, if you know him, and people like me, it clearly is a very different system. If you actually look in the suttas, stuff in the Abhidhamma, it's just not in there. So people were understandably trying to, again, analyze the teachings in the suttas according to their best understanding. So this whole system of analysis grew. If you have a different opinion about the Abhidhamma and feel like I, what I just said was, <laughs> you know, blasphemy or something, it's okay, it's fine. <laughs> uh, I'm not pressing the point, I'm just giving you my opinion. But we're just, I'm just saying that we're setting all that aside about Abhidhamma. We're looking at the Pali suttas, okay? So that's a little history. One other piece then. The suttas weren't written down till a number, maybe 300 to 500 years after the Buddha died. So it was passed as an oral tradition. Um, a matter of fact, a lot of the suttas begin with the phrase, thus have I heard. That's Ananda speaking at the first council, recounting. So it kind of brings the voice of Ananda back and makes it really alive. That's him talking to us. So um, um, because it was... Um, it was so it was evolving over those centuries until it was finally written down. Yeah. Part of what happened during that time was a whole body of commentarial literature also developed, the Pali commentaries. And so um, another thing that's very important that we're going to look at today is, and this is the last piece of the history, about, I'm, I'm guessing the date, maybe, I don't know, 800 years after the Buddha died, 700, a man named Buddha Gosa wrote a treatise called, and this is a tongue twister, but don't worry, but it's called the, with a V, Vasudhimaga. Some of you have heard of the Vasudhimaga. It means um, the path of purification. He took the commentarial understanding and brought it together in one big, thick book. For many Theravada Buddhists, Buddhists, Buddhists the whole understanding of how to meditate is funneled through the lens of the Vasudhimaga. In fact, if you practice in a place like Spirit Rock, very, very heavy Vasudhimaga influence. These are gross generalizations I'm making here, and we'll explore this. For many others, including people like Tan Jeff, people like myself, now Tan Jeff would say, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he may, wouldn't surprise me to say, a Buddha Gosa got it wrong. I don't think he got it wrong. It's just a, a different understanding evolved. 
So we're going to look, there's a lot of the confusion is because if you, if you, if, it really is a different system. If you just look and see, they're just real different. Now, uh, proponents of the Vasudhi Magas will, are very clear. If you want to understand what's in the suttas, you've got to look at what the Vasudhi Maga says. What we're going to do is we're going to set the Vasudhi Maga aside and we're going to look at the suttas on their own terms. Then we're going to set the suttas aside and we're going to look at the Vasudhi Maga on its own terms. And then we're going to come back and we'll be able to look at controversies and everything. We'll also look at modern understandings. It's not all going to be looking at ancient texts. So that was a little history to understand these two uh, systems. But as, as you'll have to come to your own conclusions, but I am suggesting, more than suggesting, I'm saying that there's actually within Theravada two distinct systems, and they're, not, they're very different. And so we don't have to get confused about who's saying what. People are coming from different systems. So we, and we have to be careful about judging a system unless we're talking about it from within the system. There's not a right or wrong in these systems. They're just different systems. Right? And they, 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 they have two very different jhanas. There's different, totally very, very different jhanas. Different understandings of what insight meditation is and how it connects with concentration. It comes from these two systems. And then what's happened over the years, and it's happening even today in modern times, people blend the systems. They don't even necessarily know sometimes. And they mix them and blend them. And so modern teachers are making it their own. So it's a rich world out there. Yeah. So basic, okay on that? Clear? Comment? Question? Yes, please. Did you have, were you raising your hand? Or were you? Yes, please. So, um, so the jhana means there's um, there's eight type of jhanas like arupa jhana. We're going to get into all that later. Okay. We're going to explore all that in detail. So if, are, if, if I don't want to, if you have a comment, yes. But I'm going to we're going to talk about what's jhana, how many jhanas, what are they. Rupa, Arupa, all that stuff. Yes, we're going to explore in detail. It's all in your notes here too, yes. So the jhana is practiced in different uh, religions already. I mean, is it uh, discovered by Buddha or it is uh, Buddha's unique um, technique? It well, was. is right. So is jhana unique to the Buddha? So this is very interesting because, well, that's a... So there's different understandings about, what, about that. So the, there were concentration practices well-known during the Buddhist time, and he practiced them. And, um, um, and he, he attained some of the deep jhana states. He found that those in and of themselves didn't lead to the liberation. Some of these schools, these yoga schools, wanted you to have these deep states of samadhi, and that was their goal. The Buddha said, no, there's something more here. So then he added some of the liberation practices or whatever. The insights came in with that. But, so this is a big topic, but uh, certainly those practices were around. So we don't really know how much did he change it or, or, or invent something new. But, you know, he talked about attaining some of these uh, jhana states and some of what we call formless attainments or formless jhanas. Yes, I read uh, he learned from Hindu tradition of... Um Meditation. Yes. And uh, through two teachers, uh, Ramaputra is some. So these are like 
um, different states, he reached already through them. Yes. And only the mindfulness he discovered, apart well, from, you know. Yeah, well, that's, you know, I don't know what they were teaching during the day, but, but you know, what was exactly unique from, from the Buddhist perspective. What's, I think the tradition would say it's the insight part. Mindfulness is part of, kind of gets associated with the insight side. It shouldn't be because mindfulness is connected with concentration too. But I think the insight side is what he brought in, the liberation through non-clinging place, which is different than attaining certain meditative states. He went beyond attaining meditative states. And yeah, so that's a whole big question. So what's the liberation that the Buddha pointed to? Maybe we'll have time to spend some time exploring that topic. Okay for now? Thank you. Okay, thank you. Yes, please. So um, years ago, I read um, Daniel Goleman's book on, um, I think it was his, his PhD thesis on meditation, and he talked about uh, meditation as either focusing on transcendence, or um, which involves concentration, and or, um, how do they call it? Uh, well, insight in, the ter in terms of um, mindfulness. And integrating that, I think, with your compassion and living in the world. So, as I sort of understood traditional meditation focus, it can be either on attaining these states of concentration and absorption, or, or, and maybe both. Right. Turns <laughs> or out mindfulness. Right. It turns out to be a little more, that's kind of, that's the general understanding, yeah. I think, for many people. Mm -hmm. turns out uh, it's, it's a lot more than that, actually. Mm -hmm. and that's what we're going to do today. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when you look at how people teach, think about, for those of you, some of you might be new to, to the meditation scene, but for those of you who've been around, some people... Well, I've actually, uh, you know, some people really de-emphasize samadhi a lot and say you just have to be mindful. Mm -hmm. By the way, today right. one of the questions is, even though it's a, we're, we're going to explore the concentration side, is mind mindfulness often gets equated with insight. Mm -hmm. Polytechs don't do that. Insight's not m mindfulness. Mindfulness is in there with the concentration. In, so, but that's what you hear is mindfulness gets equated with insight. Mm -hmm. But we're going to explore that more. So, but some teachers really consciously de-emphasize the, the the concentration and say you just have to be mindful, and they don't really, they're not that interested in how concentrated you are. Some make a huge, big deal about concentration. You not only have to have concentration, but you have this particular kind. Others, like me, I think they're both important. Blend them together. So it's a big world out there that we'll take a look at. Yes, please. I just have a terminology question. Yeah. I'd like to clear up. Yes. What is the difference between samadhi and shamatha? We're going to talk about that later, okay. uh, actually, but shamatha is the, the Sanskrit, samatha is the Pali. It means tranquility. And uh, some people coming from the Vasudhimaga tradition, they use the terms interchangeably. There's samatha and insight. Suttas don't do that. Samadhi and samatha are not the same thing. Samatha is tranquility. We're getting ahead of the day, but, but here's a, I think we're going to talk about that a lot. And if we don't get it answered, would you please bring it back in later? Thank you. Okay, thank you. Okay. Okay. Yes, please. Mm 
one um, understanding or impression I have is that the, the Sudi Maga influence is in part uh, geographic, like Burmese versus Thai, yes, and then Sri Lanka. Um, and so I'm curious if you, I understand the Burmese tradition is more influenced by Vasudhi Maga, the Thai tradition less so. That's a, that is true. Did you all hear that? I actually meant to say that, but that, yeah. I think Sri Lanka is probably pretty strong Vasudhi Maga is my understanding. Yeah. Burma for sure, definitely less so in Thailand. It's for some people just, you know, completely kind of think the Vasudhi Maga put things off in quite a wrong direction. They'll go that strong and uh, just ignore it. I think we can't ignore it. Uh, I don't practice or teach in the Vasudhi Maga style myself when I'm teaching retreats in my own practice, but I mean, it's such a big influence. Again, if you're at Spirit Rock, pretty much a Vasudhi Maga understanding. Which speaks to the strong influence of the Mahasi Sayadaw lineage. Right, it's all historical. Within the Western Dharma teaching Sangha. Exactly. As opposed to Tan Jeff, which is who's Thai forest in tradition. Thailand, of course. That's exactly right. Exactly. I think you just said it exactly. Thank you for, for that. Okay. So, um, first, let's just start if you go to page two of your notes. Um, did someone, anyone walk in late and not have notes? Okay, um, we're going we're gonna to make some extra copies. And so either please sh sit next to someone and share, but we're going to get some extra copies. I just guessed wrong on the attendance today, so we'll get them to you. Um, so this word samadhi, usually translated as concentration, and we'll continue to use that word. I actually don't think it's the best word, but we're kind of stuck with it because everyone uses it. Because there's so much so many different connotations around the term. But if you look, it actually means undistracted is the real meaning. And so we need to pause on this before we look at any text because it turns out there are, I'll just, there's a, this is a, again, there's, I'm going to name two, it, it's a bigger world than this, but two main ways that an undistracted mind can develop. And that will really help us understand where people are coming from as we proceed today. So the um, one way is, this isn't texts, I'm just going to just talk about it. So if you, um, whatever practice you do, say mindfulness of breathing, or you can pick mantras or anything, any kind of meditation practice you do, I'll just say breathing. If you continue with those practices, well, you'll train your mind and you will get better. Your skill, your ability to stay connected with your breathing will improve. Many of you know this from your own practice. And so you're becoming more undistracted, this word concentration, on the breath. And so your mind will wander away less. When you wander away, you'll be less deeply lost for less time. And more and more and more, you'll really be undistracted, concentrated on this breath, right? If you took that far enough, you could develop your ability or your skill in concentrating on the breath or on anything. You could take it so far that the mind would never wander. And in fact, you, it's possible to take it so far that the mind becomes, they use this term, one-pointed, and I'm going to come back to that in a minute, because you're you're just kind of locked or fixed on a point. And if you take it really far, 
you can get to the point where the mind cannot wander. It, it, there's, it, it can never go off the breath. And in fact, you won't even notice anything else. You won't notice your body anymore because you're so undistracted or engrossed or one-pointed on the breath. You won't even feel your body. You won't hear sounds. There won't be thoughts. All other experience will drop away and there's only whatever's happening. And, and, and we'll talk again in a bit. There's other things that happen. Some people see lights or can have blissful experiences or whatever. We're going to get into that more. Um, maybe there'll be only bliss or only light. And you just, there is no other experience. Right? That's a particular kind of, of undistractedness. And it's uh, the word in Pali is called ekagata. That's, that's in your notes. And it's, the eka means one or single. So one-pointedness. It's sometimes also called exclusive concentration because your mind is exclusively on one thing. And you could also say it excludes any other kind of awareness. The mind actually come, stops all other mental activity and experience, the flow of experience stops for you at that point. There's, there's not even a sense of a you there thinking, okay, this is great, wow, this is really great, I'm, I'm blissed out. No, it's not like that. There's just the light and the bliss. Now, there's a second way that undistractedness, samadhi, can evolve that's just as deep and strong, but it's qualitatively very different. And in this style, there's still a stopping, but it's a different kind of stopping. So I'm going to have to be a little sloppy in my use of terminology here. Uh, I'm going to use the term the mind. Uh, you know, I don't even really know what the mind is. It's, you know, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm going to just... Hopefully this will make sense. When I say the mind, in the second kind of undistractedness, the mind comes to stillness, just like in this first kind I was talking about. It's completely present and undistracted, can never wander. But the flow of changing experiences doesn't stop. You're totally as present as, instead of using the word one-pointed, I take the term ikagata and call it unification of mind. I translate it a little differently for this. The mind is, and we'll, we want to explore this more. Um, but, and the way I think about it is this. I don't, I'm not a brain scientist, so that what I'm about to say may not be actually the way the brain works, but I think it makes the point. Whatever brain functions are involved in bringing your mind to that deepest state I talked about of exclusive one-pointedness, that is the same in this second kind of unification of mind. But, but in that first kind, other brain functions have also quieted down. They've come to samatha, tranquility. That's why you can't experience anything else. But in the second kind, those brain functions are still operative. So there still can be awareness of the body, sounds, different things happening, even though the one-pointedness of the mind, the undistractedness of the mind we'll use this term absorption later, is the same level depth. I call this second kind, instead of inclusive, exclusive, I call it inclusive body because it includes everything. It doesn't exclude anything. And matter of fact, there's this uh, Ajahn Chah, the great Thai meditation master, I think this is what he was talking about in his famous quote. I, I'm going to get it 
This isn't exactly word for word, but he said, make your mind like a clear forest pool. And he said, you know, when you get really still, all kinds of rare and wonderful animals will come to drink at the pool. All kinds of experiences will come and go. But you will be still. And you will see the nature of all things. So these are, does this make sense how I'm talking about the, two, the difference here? I was spending a little extra time just to get the, yeah. Are you saying that when you sit down with the attention to doing concentration, one of these two different kinds of concentration will happen? Or that you aim for one of the two different right. kinds depending on your style? That's very important what you just said. Um, n- People will aim in one... Naturally, if nobody interfered or told you what to do, you'll head in one of these two directions or in another. And then you can choose to steer it in either direction. Now, we're not going to talk... That's more practice. But, for example, when I work with people, I work in the second style, which is the inclusive style. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll explore that, what that means, because part of today we'll look at actually, from a practice point of view... Because when, when you have an inclusive style, you don't have to separate out insight, right? So if people start heading in the one-pointedness, I can, it's fine with me if they want to go in the direction, it's fine, but you can easily steer it in the other direction. We won't talk how do you do that, but I'm happy to chat with you offline about that. So both are, both of these are some considered samadhi, my you know, flawed understanding so far was that the latter one is awareness or mindfulness, and I was thinking they're actually the same thing, but you're saying it's not. Right. So if you haven't experienced these meditative states, then it's kind of hard, like, well, what would that be? But So you just have to kind of... So I think it's easy for people to um, conceptualize, at least, if you haven't experienced it, coming to a place of one-pointedness where I can get it, my whole mind comes to stopping and you're just so focused on the one point, and you lose awareness of everything else. That can, the second one sometimes for people can be a little more, but there is a different kind of stopping. And the, the experience of it is, I mean, it just feels your mind stops. You're totally just as present as much as in the other style. of The, the, the depth of your un, undistractedness and your concentration and your one-pointedness is the same, but from within that place you haven't shut down certain other mental processes so that... Now, the experience of the body at that point, it's, it's maybe you only experience your body as being pure light or vibration, so it's, you're on a different level, but, but it's, it's, it's a different... So if you're okay with it, because we're going to go into that more when we look at Vasudhimaga versus Sutta in the text, I'd like to set it aside for now just for time. Is that okay? Okay, okay with this so far? Okay, I think now we've got the basis for... Moving into some texts now, yeah? So right now we're going to set aside the Vasudhi Magha and we're just in the Pali Suttas. Okay? And um, I'm going to just read some things that aren't in your notes just to kind of set something here uh, about the importance of samadhi. And then we're going to pick it up again on page two of your notes where it says write samadhi. But... Um, Just a couple of others. I read at the beginning, some of you missed this, some quotes of the Buddha. Um, I would say this, it's hard. See, this is a tricky part. 
given how much samadhi and how much jhana is emphasized in the suttas, it's actually hard, you think, how can people de-emphasize it? It's, it's hard to imagine because they make a huge big deal about it. But as we're reading this, I think it's important to say it is a big deal, but it's also, we don't want to make it kind of a big deal at all because what's important is that liberation of our hearts and minds. And this is just training our mind to be more clear and present so we can perceive the way we create suffering and the way to let it go. That's all. However, the Buddha says, if there is no right concentration, which we're going to define in a minute, then the basis, it's jhana is the way they define it, then the basis for knowledge and vision of things as they really are is destroyed for one who lacks right concentration. This is a quote out of the suttas. If there's no knowledge and vision of things as they really are, then the basis for disenchantment and dispassion is destroyed. If there's no disenchantment and dispassion, then the basis of liberation is destroyed. All of that if you don't have right concentration. So they're making a big emphasis on it. And there's also a lot of emphasis we won't get into here about, you know, having to have the, the rest of the Eightfold Path, you know, the morality parts and all that. It is interesting for those of you who, um, we're going to look here at what's right samadhi. So, uh, you know, there's the Four Noble Truths and then there's the Fourth Noble Truth is the Path, which is the Eightfold Path. Um, if anybody here, I, I don't, sometimes people are a little self-conscious to raise their hand, but is there anyone here who's never heard the Eightfold Path? It's fine if you haven't, just so, yeah. So, okay, so I'm going to assume, you know, there's this Eightfold Path. Um, and it tends to get divided up into these three sections. The first two, right, right view and right understanding, are called the wisdom section. Right speech, right action, right livelihood are, are the sila or the morality section. And then the last three, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, are the samadhi section. It's interesting, isn't it? It's not the mindfulness section. It's the concentration set, the samadhi section. Now, that's saying something. So, what is right samadhi? First of all, this word right on the Eightfold Path. In a way, that's a little unfortunate translation that came to us through... We owe a great debt of gratitude to the British anthropologists. It's, it's a vestige of, of British colonialism in India, but who studied there, you know, and there's a whole history of how Buddhism had been, the origins had been lost. Um, and uh, you can read about it. It's a very interesting history, and it was rediscovered by some of the British. And uh, some of the early translators um, took this word right, in the, in the Eightfold Path, it's Sama, with a short A, S-A-M-M-A, Sama. And so the right speech, right action, right livelihood, it's, it's not right, it's Sama. And actually the meaning of the word means to be connected in one with something, if you look it up in the Pali English Dictionary. It's a beautiful feeling to be connected in one with, you know. So we don't want to hear it as right or wrong on Samadhi. I think a better one would be wise or skillful. But we're going to use the word right because that's just what everyone... But that's the understanding. So you don't want to think it's wrong. But the texts say explicitly, and here it is in your notes. Right? It doesn't say, 
having pretty good concentration or should be really concentrated. It's explicit in the suttas that when they say right concentration of the Eightfold Path, it means the four jhanas. There's, and we'll say what the four jhanas are later this morning. That's it. I would like to offer to you that a more useful way to hold it. This isn't the suttas, it's just me and other teachers would say. You would say any degree of samadhi, of concentration that you have, I would consider right concentration as long as it's informed by right view and right understanding and the morality and all of that because you're just at wherever you're at. And it's not serving us to say, well, I just have wrong concentration unless I'm in jhana. I don't think that's going to help us. And in fact, as we're going to see, there's a whole path of practice which, which uh, in jhana is not a part. You know. Matter of fact, if you go to a place like Spirit Rock, they have a retreat once a year called the Concentration Retreat. I've taught it a couple of times. It's a great retreat. And it's wonderful. Right away, that's telling you something. They have all these retreats every year, and then there's one called the Concentration Retreat. So that's something different than all these other insight retreats, even though they may care about the concentration side. So there's a whole path in which we just don't need to think about jhana. So the way to hold it is the way I just said, so we don't create a lot of suffering. But the text, right concentration is jhana. So at least we should understand what jhana is, appreciate it, and then decide for ourselves if that's something we're interested in or not. Yeah? Anything about that? I mean, that's not much more to say. There's some more quotes I have here for you that you can look at if you want. But we're going to get into all these other quotes, all these other aspects later, yeah? Okay. Now, what we're going to do now is, if you would turn to page 8 in your notes, we're going to go a little while longer. Um... I want to come back, we're going to come back to a lot of samadhi in the suttas. We're going to look at like all these important lists, like there's the four foundations of mindfulness and uh, mindfulness of breathing suttas and all these meditation practice texts and how does samadhi fit in there and what is samadhi and jhana in the Pali suttas. But first we want to step up back to the Vasudhimaga. The Vasudhimaga then, remember this was written later, and Um, look in the middle of page 8. This text, the Vasudhimaga, again, I say it was written around the 5th century in the Common Era, and it's based on one particular sutta uh, in the Pali Sutta called the Relay Chariots, and I list it to give you the name of it there. And in that sutta, It's just one place in the suttas. It says that the path to full enlightenment, it's like like the old Pony Express in this country. It's like a relay. You ride one chariot or one horse until you pick up the next, and then you pick up the next chariot, and that takes you a certain amount of the way, and and and, and so on. And so there's these seven stages And it lists what the seven stages are. We're not getting into that at all today. But it doesn't give any explanatory detail 
It just names them. It says, you know, there's, there's this, the inside of this, the inside of that, and so on. That's it. The whole structure of the Vasudhi Magha is based on that seven stages of, of insight that lead to enlightenment. And it put, lays out a whole path. Well, someone was asking, what samatha? Well, there's these two terms, tranquility and insight. And what the Vasudhi Magha does is it divides the path of meditation into two distinct paths. And they're just two different paths. You're either on one path or the other. One path is a path of jhana. And one is a path in which you do not aim for, nor do you attain jhana. That's interesting. You have a choice. And they're both considered full paths to enlightenment. Yeah? So one is called vipassana, that's, and one is called samatha. So the word samatha means tranquility or calm. So it's different than samadhi, which means undistracted. Tranquility and calm is a major feature of samadhi, in, whether in the suttas or in the Vasudhimaga. But it's uh, here, it's, it's, so we'll come back to that in the suttas, but it's really emphasized here as the tranquility. That's the path of samatha. So sometimes you'll talk about people, you, people, you can see people are using the term samatha in, interchangeably for samadhi. This is all Vasudhimaga uh, approach. Um, so again, samatha is a path you're aiming for jhana, you attain jhana. In the path of vipassana, we just, there's no jhana. You set all of that aside. Yeah? So let's look at, yeah? Okay, so let's, let's look at that in a little more detail. First, we'll look at um, um, samatha meditation. And it's interesting, in the Vasudhimaga, there are, there's a list of 40 different meditation subjects given or objects i'll name them if you want the full list you, know, you don't have to buy the book but just go buy my samadhi book up out on the thing in the appendix i've got them all listed in there there are uh mindfulness of breathing is in there there are 10 practices for example called casino practices casino like you might make there are colored casinos you'll make these colored discs blue white red yellow and you stare at it you know that's there's casinos mindfulness of breathing um Anyway, there's a lot, a lot of different practices in there. Mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of the body, those are in there too. And so in the Vasudhimaga, um, there's a whole detailed progression of how do you find the right practice for you, which one is for what temperament, and it goes in a lot of detail about it. And you get help from an advisor and all of that. And then you pick one object. And your goal is to attain what's called fixed concentration. That's at the top of page 9. That's another term for when I, when I talked earlier about exclusive or one-pointedness. That's what it's aiming for here, very specifically. It's not talking about that other kind of samadhi that I call inclusive unification mind. It's talking about exclusive, one-pointed, and they call it fixed. You can see fixed. Your mind is fixed on an object, yeah? And as I say here, no other experience can arise so the mind is one-pointed or fixed on a point. I'm, to say a point, but you know, fixed on one thing. And the awareness of changing experience is lost because you're so absorbed on one thing. 
That's the aim in the path of samatha in the Vasudhimaga. Vipassana meditation, so we'll come back when we look at jhana, then this is a particular kind of jhana they're talking about. In the path of Vipassana, it's very different. Um, you can, so it says, you can atta- if you attain the first jhana, you can, uh, you can then shift over to do Vipassana as a separate kind of practice. Or, you never have to, it's up to you, you have to obtain, obtain it. But in either case, they're, 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 I use this term here called momentary concentration. And you'll hear people talk about in our tradition momentary concentration. And momentary concentration just means having, so you don't want your mind, you want to have a certain amount of samadhi. So your mind's not jumping all over the place. But you want to be, so you have some steadiness, but only enough so that you can just stay moment to moment with the change with changing experience. And a lot of, you go to Spirit Rock or IMS or in this tradition and many, many teachers will teach and well, they may emphasize the breath more or some may after you work with the breath for a few days to steady your mind, maybe you won't put any particular object and they may say like in a pure Mahasi style, you know, just moment to moment mindful of whatever's arising moment to moment. They don't give any preference over any experience. That's called momentary concentration. That's what the path of Vipassana wants you to do. Remember, we're in, we're in the vis- world of the Vasudhimaga now. And according to the Vasudhimaga's understanding, insight cannot arise in jhana. This is their definition of jhana. Because there's no changing experience and you need to have insight into change. That's part of the insight. And so by definition, if you're practicing in a Vasudhimaga style, if you attain that jhana, they say there's no insight in there. Yes, please. So in, in some traditions, they talk about um, concentration um, meditation or concentration versus uh, what is sometimes called choiceless awareness. Yes. Is that what we're talking about in regard to the momentary? Well, choiceless awareness, that's an interesting topic that you bring up. There's no place I'm aware of. First, let's just go back to the text and then talk about how people teach. You do hear a lot about choiceless awareness. So that choiceless awareness is a little different than... Um, so this is getting... Uh, it's a little different than... Being open to the ch- mindful of the changing flow of experience, but actually p- a sense of directing the attention, mindful attention onto changing experiences. There's still a sense there of kind of going towards the experience to place your attention on it. Choiceless awareness is a place of kind of an unmoving awareness, not going on to anything. Things are just arising and passing away within a field of awareness. That's really, to me, in its culmination is more really what the inclusive samadhi I was talking about earlier, if you take it all the way, it's really more like that because there's just a pure awareness and things are just rising and passing away and not so much of a you directing. But this is is very subjective what we're talking about and there's many gradations in here. There is no practice, by the way, this is just an aside, uh, that I know of in any of the old texts around choiceless awareness. I can't think of a single place. 
someone wants to point it out, I'm happy, that's fine. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I just don't think there's actually a place that says choiceless awareness. But it may be more of a modern innovation, I don't know. But certainly for many people, it's a very powerful kind of practice. Yeah, Steve. I'll stir up the pot a little bit. That's fine. So it's, it's interesting that in the Vasudhi Magat says that you can't gain any insight in, while you're in jhana. And there is at least one sutta, most probably more, where the Buddha says that a bhikkhu who's in jhana, any of the jhanas, if they see the inconstancy in the jhana, then that will liberate their mind. And they'll become a non-returner. And if they have no passion for the Dhamma, they'll become an arhat. It goes even further than that in the suttas. You don't even have to see the inconstancy in jhana, that the, as a result of being in jhana, insight is there. But remember, you're talking about the suttas. We're in the Vasudhi Magha now. It's a different system. <laughs> no, I know, but I'm just saying it's really interesting that yeah, yeah. they would say that when the suttas say something. Yeah, so we're going to have to ask ourselves, um, Again, as different systems evolve and we practice a different way, it's all good. You know, we're all, it's all part of the meditation family. How they can interpret the, you know, we're going to look at the interpretations ourselves. And, and I think what happened is, well, let's put that aside. We're going to come back to exactly that. That's when we look at controversies. Okay. Well, yes. Does, no, does noting fall away? Um, well, that, that, that's been my own experience, but that's more of a practice question. So I, 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 all I'll say for now is, uh, I think, yes, but, but you know, it's, every, practice is so highly individual that some people may really stick with noting, I don't know what Mahasi or Upandita would have said about that uh, versus other teachers. So that's more of a practice technique question. Yes, please. You mentioned that Spirit Rock uh, teaching is ba- based on uh, Vasudhi Maga. Maga. Yeah, yes, yes. And um, what about here at IMC? Well, I want to be careful. Um, I certainly, I know, uh, I don't know about Gil because he's a different case. But like um, uh, uh, others, I mean, you know, they'll have to speak for themselves. But w- what I understand is, I'll just say, heavily Vasudhi Maga influenced for sure. I mean, Nikki, she's like, you know, very Vasudhi Maga. I mean, I'm, you know, they're practicing with all these Burmese teachers, you know, and that's, that's for Vasudhi. You know, if they were here, they might, they might say something different, and that's fine. And, and so, my, and that's a perfectly fine question. My point isn't to try to, I was just, I don't want to get, I want to be careful and respectful and not start tell, making statements about this teacher's in this style and this teacher's in that style. That's for them to say for themselves, but I was just making the point that, a lot of what we're hearing about, just, for, just in, as a general statement, when you go to a place like Spirit Rock, not everyone there, but um, I think sort of in the background, sort of influencing thing is a heavy Vasudhi Magha influence. There's no question about that. So in uh, Vasudhi Magha, um, reading this about Vipassana, I can't tell the difference between this Vipassana section here in Vasudhi Magha and what you said earlier about in, uh, inclusive concentration. This right. is very similar to me. Right, it is. It is, only here, they're t- they're, so we're going to go into more when we talk about the three levels of... Con- just hold your question for a minute, I, and bring it back up if I don't answer it, because I think we're just about to get into that exact question. 
So remember, we're putting aside the whole suttas, right? We're just in the Siddhimagga. So one more thing, terminology. You'll hear the term dry insight. This is, and it doesn't have a connotation like, because sometimes if something's dry, it's kind of, well, that's not very interesting, and it doesn't have any life to it. But that's not the, the, the meaning, actually. In the Vasudhimaga, if you practice a path, because you can turn to insight practice after, the path of Samatha includes Vipassana. It's just you attain jhana first, and then you change over to these other practices that are insight practices, like four elements meditation and other kind of practices. The path of pure insight or dry insight, you go straight to Vipassana and it, without jhana, and it's said because it's dry because it hasn't been moistened by the moisture of jhana. That's why they use the term. I don't know why, but it may be when we look later at jhana, you'll see there's all these jhana similes that have a lot of water imagery that may have something to do with it. I don't know. Okay. We're going to sort of break and have a little sit in just a few more minutes, but uh, you're, you're hanging in with this. A lot of concepts, but you got it so far? Okay. So we have two, in the Vasudhimaga, two paths of meditation. There's actually, now there's three levels of concentration it talks about. And they're here for you in your reference. I'll just name them. One is called preparatory concentration, and that's just whatever the ordinary level of concentration that you have before you're, just when you first come to meditation. That's different for everyone. They call that preparatory. Then you'll hear a term called access concentration, upachara samadhi. Um, and um, it's sometimes called neighborhood concentration because you're in the neighborhood, you're getting close to jhana. It's defined in a very specific way that we're going to define when we talk about jhana. So don't worry about the definition, but it's got a very specific definition. People these days use the term access concentration a lot without going back to, but it has a very prescribed meaning. And as you'll see later, there is no, none of these terms are in the suttas. There's no preparatory, there's no access, there's no fixed concentration. Those terms don't exist in the suttas at all. So anybody time somebody's talking about access concentration, they're really using a Vasudhimaga term. Although some people, it's interesting, who teach more in a sutta style will still borrow the terms and use them. Just to mean you're, you know, so it's just a, you know. So preparatory, then access concentration, you're really close to jhana, you've gotten this particular experience or sign that happens, as you'll see. And then there's fixed comp- concentration, which is, you know, that's when you're in jhana. And then I just put a note here, if you're a uh, what called bare insight or dry insight, those practitioners, um, they're not interested in developing those stages of concentration. What they do is they take up practice, and I list some here, like, like of just uh, insight into the arising and passing away of the five aggregates or other phenomena. Um, oh, and by the way, one other thing, I don't think I put it in here. The Vasudhimaga also says that when you're doing dry insight, pure vipassana, you want to gain a samadhi that they call momentary concentration. It's said in the text to be equal to the level of access. It will get you to the level of access concentration here. But they don't actually call it access concentration because access concentration is defined by a particular visual experience that you have and you don't get it here. But it's both said to be equally as deep. So, two paths of meditation, 
three levels of concentration. And the last thing is, I'll just mention, is called three signs of concentration. These are all, none of these are main points to remember. The only main point we've had so far, if you, if you don't remember everything else, is remember you there's two main ways samadhi can be inclusive or exclusive. That was kind of the, the a main point. Okay. So in the Vasudhi Magga, they use a term called nimitta. You may have heard that term. The term nimitta is in the suttas, but it generally means a theme of something. Here in the Vasudhi Magga, it actually has a very specific meaning. Uh, which is an actual experience, a sign that something that happens in your experience. So let's just look at them. In preliminary concentration, that's that, remember that was preparatory concentration? You get the preliminary sign, and that's just whatever your meditation object is. You've never meditated before. You sit down to meditate. You have preparatory concentration. That's what they call it. And say you're working with your breath or whatever, your experience of the breath, that's the sign. That's, that, I don't know, they just call it that. It's just whatever you're doing. Then they have, you get, you get more um, concentrated, and they have what's called the learning sign of the acquired image, a certain kind of nimitta. And that's said to be a mental image that arises in your mind as you get more concentrated. And they describe them like you'll see a disc of light and, or whatever. And there's a whole description there that happens. And so you're starting to, something's happening to you. Um, And there's, anyway, it's all just, it's a, anyway, so that's that. And then, eventually, when you get to what we call access concentration, that mental image has gotten so stronger and much clearer now. You can see it with your eyes closed as if you were looking at it with eyes open. It's like a, described as being a disk of light. And it gets so clear and flawless. When, it's, when it first comes, it's a little shaky. It, it hits a certain state, and they call that the uh, counterpart sign. It's there in, there in your nose. You know. That means you're in access concentration. And then they lay out a whole path. Uh, yeah, I know it's, con- con- but just hold on a second. And then it, we'll get to your question in just a moment. And then what happens is you, you let go of the breath and you put everything on that counterpart sign, that nimitta, and then that's your absorption into meditation, right? So I'll take your questions in a minute. We're actually going to pause in a, on the notes now in a few minutes, uh, and we're gonna, I want to just stay with this, get the questions and everything, and then we're going to do a short sit, and we'll take a break. But just to recap, see, it's, it's complicated. There's all these paths, two paths, three levels of concentration, Right? And then there's momentary concentration in the path of pure insight. And then these signs that arise. Let me say one more thing and then take both your questions. There's only one problem with the Vasudhi Maga. Um, Most people are never going to see a disk of light. I don't care how concentrated you are. Some do. I just know from working with many, many people and practicing other years, statistically, it's, it's a minority of people. It has nothing to do, nothing right or wrong. I don't know what is, how your nervous system's wired up, neuropathways in your brain. I don't know what, why some people... But think of it like this. When you start meditating, any of you who have been meditators, 
And as you go from ordinary daily life concentration and you start to deepen, you have certain experiences that arise when you're getting more. How is it you know you're getting more concentrated? You're feeling a little, it feels pleasant. Or still or calm, right? Or maybe you feel energy start to move in your body. Or some people see lights or hear sounds. All kinds of things can happen. Those are the signs of being concentrated. That's the nimitta, if you want to use that term. And actually, in the Vasudhi Maga, it does say it doesn't have to be an image. It actually says it can be felt in the body. I don't know why these modern teachers insist on seeing like this great master, and he really is a master, uh, Saidao Pawak. I interviewed him in my book. He's a great guy. He's the real, real deal. He insists you see a disc of light, and he's a strict Vasudhi Maga guy. And I don't know why that's true because in the passage, there's one paragraph right there where it says, here's what the nimitta is. And it says, you either see a disc of light. It says, or, and it says, it's felt in the body like this. And so, you know, the Vasudhi Mag itself says the nimitta can arise. It's highly individual. It's not one way. So people go crazy and suffer, knocking their head against the wall, trying to get the disc of light. And they feel like they're failures. The Vasudhi Maga itself says it doesn't have to be a disc of light. So somehow that particular teacher, and it's perfectly fine if Pawak just says, this is my system, and if you want to practice in my system, this is what it is, and this is what has to happen. That's fine, it's his system. But I'm telling you, trust me on this one, and if, if Pawak were here, I would be very respectful. I respect the heck out of him, let me tell you. But I would say... Not everybody's going to get a disc, and it's nothing to do with how concentrated you are. It just isn't. It might be felt in the body, or sometimes you don't know where it's felt. You just feel pleasant and calm and still. And so, you, don't, you know, but the classic Vasudhimaga, where most people say is you get this disc of light, that's the nimitta. I'm saying to you, if you're practicing in this style, however you experience the experiences of samadhi, that's your nimitta. And so I know people who've practiced with Pawak, and you know what? They were deep. But they said, no, no, I never got any John. And it's just because they didn't get the disc of light. But they were really deep in it. And I actually think we're in sutta-style John. So different systems. Anyway, so is your question still alive? No. Yes, please. I thought I might when you started. Yeah. I, I, had a, I had an intuition you were going to go there. Well, maybe mine's uh, obvious too, but aren't these just mental formations? Sure. So, aren't we supposed to be letting go of mental formations? Well, so it's that not that's s- part of. Yes, yes. It's not. A, well, when you use letting go, it's just using these. It's just like the breath, if as an, or any other meditation technique. <clears throat> their practices, their techniques, their methods. It's all. Remember, this is all in service of this liberation of our hearts and minds. That's what it's about. Everything else, the only purpose is, well, what will support us to have a liberated heart and mind? Listen, you can have everyday insights that have nothing to do with meditation that can be liberating if they're held in a Dharma context. Psychotherapy can be. So there's a, it's a big range of what liberates us. From a meditation point of view, we're trying to uh, strengthen our mindfulness, develop the undistractedness of our minds, 
you know, it's interesting. There's a big, even though there's a big range of, of ways in which teachers, meditation teachers, will emphasize or de-emphasize concentration. But if you, if you, if you in, replace the term concentration with the word undistracted, there's no disagreement about the importance and value of having an undistracted clarity of mind. Right? So why do we do that? It's just in service of being able to understand our own minds, our own bodies, the world around us, the way our minds work, the ways we create suffering, and the way to let suffering go. That's the reason for cultivating the steadiness and clarity of mind. And so then these are just techniques to help develop that steadiness. So in this path, by developing this disc of light, you're getting pretty concentrated, or, or, and then putting your attention, going into the jhana, you've got a very steady mind. And the idea is then, in the Vasudhimaga path, when you come out, you still, you're not in jhana, but you still have a very steady, clear mind that can be then turned towards insight. And even insight, look, this is, might be blasphemy to some of you. This is just me. I don't think we should make too big of a deal about, well, I've got to be careful, about insight. That's not right. Let me back off. It is a big deal, but it's in service of the liberation of the mind. It's not ultimately the insights themselves that are important. It's what frees our hearts and minds. What has us live in a way that creates less suffering for ourselves and others and more well-being for ourselves and others, where we can really actualize a lived experience of non-clinging and open heart. That's, and so insights are in service of that. I, I, I didn't mean say to say... The, you can say the same thing about jhana. Right. I do. So it's all skillful means in different parts of the path. We have to find which of these... So we don't want to cling to any of it, and we want to use it skillfully in service of freeing our hearts and minds. Is that okay or more to say on that? Or? Maybe I'm not understanding what you're kind of uh, grappling I, with. I here. think I'm not really a Vipassana person. I mean, I have, I'm influenced a lot by the Mahayanas. Yeah, so. And, you know, objects of mental formations, you know, are just things we make up. And we can in our minds and that I mean they're not right they're just false they're just they're just stories right so what I would say to you is just experientially I would this is just me speaking not texts or anything if we can just go right into the heart, living heart of what you just said we well, don't need to meditate but the question is without for probably almost everybody I won't say every, categorically everyone we need to train our minds right. to really be able to actualize that. And that's the part where this is emphasizing the mental training. But we don't want to get too engrossed just all, it's about the training. It's all in service of more uh, letting go and, and non-clinging and, uh, that you're pointing to. It's in I, service of that. I guess I'm, that makes a lot of sense to me. I guess when I hear people talk about jhanas, it's always with some with a whole bunch of grasping. Right. Most and people, Let's yeah. get there and let's hold on to it. Right. And the whole retreat was a disaster because I couldn't right. get into the third jhana or right. something. But what I would say about that is that's very common for people. The very thing that's... So think of jhana as taking undistractedness and clarity of mind just very far. So you're really undistracted and your mind's very, very clear. So if you hold it like that, who wouldn't want to do that in service of, 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 of as a support? Just one second, yes, Steve. That would be uh, 
a skillful thing to do, I think. And you're right. I've fallen into it plenty of times myself in my early days of practice around craving and chasing. The very thing that was meant to be an aid on the path to, to freedom from suffering becomes a tr giant suffering generator. So it just happens for people. And then what happens is they suffer and it's horrible and you learn. It's like, oh, and so part of it can actually be held as part of a learning on the way the mind creates suffering around John and it can actually be part of a real liberation teaching. And it even is, if nothing for that, uh, just the fact that that contracting yourself is, it's too, you can't, jhanas are deep states of letting go, not states of doing. And when you're tied in a knot, you're not letting go. You actually, it's count, you're actually preventing the thing you're going for. So we have to work with it. And I'll say this, Buddha warned, jhana, states of jhana are real pleasant. Many people practice just to have those meditative states. That's a, that's a developmental stage to get to of, of, of when we get to a place of, of a liberation of non-clinging of where jhana drops away. And there's a whole thing of where we actually see that, okay, jhana is so gratifying that ordinary sense pleasures, I can see they're just not going to do it for me now. And then you actually get to a place directly experientially where you could actually see John is not going to do it either. It's an interesting place when you touch that. I've been in, sitting in Jhana and it's like, and I'm bored. It's like, God, I was chasing after this my whole life. Now I'm sitting in here. It's just like, I want to go surf the internet. <laughs> just to distract myself. In John, it can happen. And then it's just like, it's a little agitation, like something's still not complete. And it's like, wow, even John is not. Then something has to let go deeper. So it's all how we hold any of this. Anyway, so we kind of got, okay. One more, Steve, and then we'll, we'll, we're going to, okay, yes. Yes, just one. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to point out, uh, put my two cents. There's, uh, you hear a lot in the Vipassana community about letting go, letting go, letting go. But if you look at the Buddhist teachings, the most fundamental on the, on the four noble truths, there's duties to them. And the fourth is to develop the path. And all through the Suttas, he talks about the bhikkhu generating desire. It's also generating virtue and, and healthy senses of self. They're, right. And, and they're things to be developed. Now, eventually, you, you run it as far as you can. Then you see it has drawbacks, and then you let it go. But, right. But that's a very important part of the path, I think, is not right. emphasized in the West, is developing Right. A, a skillful develop, developing of things. I appreciate that. And in fact, I, I'm right in completely in line with that. And in fact, one of the things I appreciate, if any of you, you know, Ajahn Tanisro, who comes here, I think once a year or so, you know, he's really emphasized that a lot. I appreciate that. And in fact, it reminds me of, some of you know, the famous simile, this is in the Sutta simile of the raft. And the Buddha says, you know, if you were to build a raft to cross a body of water, and then once you made it safely to the other side, it would not make sense to carry the raft around on your back. The raft has served its purpose to get you to the other shore. And he goes, similarly, the Dharma and all the teachings, I mean, he really lays it out, are meant for crossing over, but he says they even have to be let go of. All the practices, the cultivation, everything, at some point have to be let go of. I think what Steve is pointing to is, let's not jump off the raft while we're still in the middle of the lake. <laughs> or the river. Right. We need, that's why we have a system and a structure and, and a path and suttas and all this stuff. None of that stuff is, is a liberation. That is something very personal, really. 
and alive. And you can't say anything about it. It's the liberated heart and mind. But, and the structure falls away. But let's not <laughs> jump up too soon <laughs> before the wa- while the water's still over our heads. <laughs> Did you still have one more thing here? Um, so I'm thinking about this word nimitta and I'm appreciating your uh, pointing out the distinction between the Vasudhimaga and the suttas and also traditions. Um, and so, as you mentioned, Pauxide, Strict Maga, that Nimitta is very specific, and it's, and I wanted to clarify language as I understand it. It's sort of a sticky thing, but we're not actually developing the Nimitta, we're developing the practice, and the Nimitta is a result of the practice. Right, it just arises. It's just spontaneously arising. Right. So it's a sign of yes. concentration. That's more, yeah, that's, yeah. It's like if you exercise, you'll sweat. Right? I and think your sweat that. is a sign of your exercise. Right. You'll feel hot. Right. Yeah. So to understand the nimitta is spontaneously arising yeah. as a result of concentration. It's a manifestation right. of concentration. And, and that is true for people who, who report seeing a light, like you see a disc of light. But it's also for any of us, for those who, uh, we won't do it, but if we went around here, not many hands would go up for a disc of light. Right. And, so that's the other thing is that the nimitta, so Pa'akas is very specific nimitta. Right. And Vasudhimaga is in some way supporting that. But then what nimitta is translated as is very different in traditions. For example, uh, Ajahn Sumedho in the Thai tradition. But he's he not talks, a Vasudhimaga guy. Exactly. He's not. <laughs> and he talks about a nimitta of him being in the Arctic. And then just that experience yeah. of the, because he works with the, um, the sound of silence. Yeah, yeah. And so a nimitta arose in his meditation of him being yeah. in the Arctic, the sound of silence. So he's using the same word, and it's a very different experience. And you know, just for yeah. me, that was a really important point to hear, like, right. wait a minute, nimitta means only this one thing right. in this tradition, but actually a different person in a different tradition right. has a very different definition right. of what a nimitta is. That's a very good point. And also going back to one other thing you said, that you're not trying to, trying to cultivate a nimitta, it arises. For those of you who forget the light, just say you go to meditate, maybe you're at home or on a retreat, and when you start settling in deeper and you just notice, oh, I'm deeper in the meditation, I can feel myself, that experience... You didn't go this way. I'm trying to cultivate an experience of calm. No, you're just staying with your breath, staying with your breath, and then the calm arises. It's the same thing. It's, it's, it comes. Now, you can then, it's a whole different thing later on, start to turning your attention to these nimittas, to these experiences more, and use them, but I think what you said is accurate. But I also think that it's very helpful to talk about it, and yes, there can always be grasping, and it can always be, this is the challenge of the path, right? It can always be twisted and misconstrued, but in fact, you know, for myself, I experienced light naturally for many years, and I sort of looked on it as a distraction. And it was years of hearing, and then going, oh, oh, that's what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so it's just a recognition of the phenomenon that yeah. arises, and we might have identification or uh, grasping or aversion in any way in response yeah, yeah, yeah. to the phenomenon. No, great. Okay. Yes, we're going to break, but one, one more, please, and then we're going to need to take a break. Hi, I just have a, 
I don't know if it's a question or, or a comment. So in a fixed, uh, undistracted state, when you, for instance, let's say that you become so much of your breath, so in those moments, you actually don't have a self. So when you don't really have a self, you really don't have any knowledge. You're kind of like gone in a way. So what is the purpose of being totally fixed in any object? But I'm not saying that, well, you, maybe that experience that you're saying of being gone happened for you, and that would be something to talk about. But I'm not talking about getting to a state where you're gone. I'm talking about a state. We're using language about the you and all that. We're talking conventional language. I'm not getting into self or not self right now. We're just talking about everyday conventional way of talking about us as people and in, in meditating. Um, um, I'm where if that were to happen to someone working with me, I would actually want to steer them back to a place that rather than being gone, they're here, really in a very clear, present way here, which is kind of the opposite of being gone. And using the breath, and that's just, again, one example of many ways of practice, as just, uh, you know, at some point, breath drops away. And, and you'll see when you talk about jhana, there's no breath in those descriptions of, of jhana. It's just one example of bringing our mind back to something to train it. Of course, the breath has a lot more to teach us than that because it's changing and everything. And so it's, it's helping us become more and more present. But it's not about getting lost in the breath. It's wanting to use the breath to help us actually our awareness open up into our whole bodies and to being more and more present. But that is a distraction. If you choose an object, right, to concentrate or focus on, you become the object. And you don't you have be- to become the object. But I thought that was one of the um, description that you had in the beginning about the form of meditation. Yeah, but we have it. We're only part. We're just getting warmed up this morning. Oh, okay. All right. All right. The way I practice, which is more of of, of a sutta style, uh, what I'm call- now I got to be careful when I'm making this distinct- distinction between. Vas- I'll come back to what you said in a moment between Vasudhimada and suttas. Again. I've got, I'm in good company, but I'm saying they're two different systems. You look for your... They are. They're two different systems. I don't care who's sitting here next to me. They're different systems. But as a matter of fact, uh, I kind of wimped out in my first book on samadhi because I, I, what I wrote was... It, I, nobody really out there had come out and just laid it out like this and really... In the, I just say, you know, there's these different systems and... It's not, not criticizing one or the other, but helping to clarify. And I knew it was going to be super controversial, and I've caught some hell from Burma and other places. But uh, <laughs> uh, people like Tan Jeff appreciated it. But uh, um, I wimped out because I, I, I wanted, I, I said in there, well, the Vasudhi Maga says this, and then I said, but the suttas seem to, I put this seem, seem to be indicating this. Got to take the word seem out. <laughs> They're really different systems. So it's possible to practice in a system in which you're totally, say, absorbed into something, if you want to use that term. We're getting a, yeah, you can do that. Um, and it's also proc- where, you, where you become utterly undistracted, but you're not lost in something. There is a, there is a clear awareness about, something, about things. You don't have to, if you can't conceptualize it, that's fine, but um, you, know, you can experience it. Okay, that's good. Okay, thanks. Uh, it's 11 o'clock. Let's break for... Uh, let's go.